last week while we were out of town. Uh, Brother Kenny Chester has been so good to uh, come and minister for me anytime I've been out of town or just needed uh, just a day. Uh, okay, absolutely. Will do. A couple of people actually traveling, traveling today and on the way to or from. Jamie Milby is on her way home from South Carolina. Keaton and his entire class is on their way to Washington, D.C. So let's stop for a minute and just thank God for protection. Yes. Yes. Okay, Eli. Eli. Eli Watkins. Okay. All right. Okay. Yes, sir. Young age. Lord, we just thank you, God, first of all, that you will be with the parents, the family. Fathers, they just kind of wrap their minds around this, that you would bring peace and calm, wisdom for them, provision for them. And we pray for Eli. We thank you, God, for just taking care of him. We thank you for your healing power in his body. Father God, for catfish, we speak healing over his eyes, healing in his vision. We just thank you, God, for just health and strength in his life. And Father God, all across this room today, anybody who's battling with any type of sickness, infirmity, disease, those who are battling with symptoms of allergies that are just kind of bringing them down and making them draggy, Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for healing for them as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I was wanting to thank you for those who came out last week as I was filling in in return for uh, Kenny Chesser. Uh, he was actually there but just kind of needed a break and so we went and, and filled in for him and had a good time there in outside of Dyersburg, Tennessee. Good time of fellowship. They send their greetings to all of you. But I know you guys had great services. Steve led worship and David Parrish preached the word of God. I heard nothing but good things and I appreciate you coming out and supporting them. Uh, this is Palm Sunday. And so if you will, I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And I want to read Matthew's rendering of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the week when he would be crucified. And... There are some things, obviously, in this story that, that are, will be familiar to us because we read it every year at about this time. But uh, there are also a few things that I believe the Holy Spirit spoken to my heart in relation to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that I think are important for us to see in our own lives now. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Just real quick, just want to point out that what you see there is Jesus operating in the same gifts of the Holy Spirit that you and I are told in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 9 or 12, I believe, my mind went blank, in 1 Corinthians that we can operate in. 
One being the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge. He has supernatural revelation speaking into their lives. He knows ahead of time exactly where something's going to be, exactly how they're going to find things. And he gives his disciples wisdom about that. Now, my job today and my desire is not to talk to you about the gifts of the Holy Spirit necessarily, although they're very important for our lives. But what I do want to point out to you is that when God gives you direction, it's not your job or my job to worry about how it's going to be fulfilled. Now, we could understand how these disciples would get kind of tied up in knots about what Jesus had asked them to do because the modern-day equivalent would be for you and I to go into town square and find a car sitting there with the keys in it. And if anybody says anything about it to us when we take the car for Jesus' use, just to tell them that the Lord needs it. And so if you can imagine how you might feel if the Holy Spirit gave you those type of directions, and I'm certainly not saying that he would do that, but if you can imagine how you might feel, you might get an idea of how these two disciples felt on that day when Jesus asked them to do what I'm sure sounded like a very strange thing. I'm sure one thing that went through their mind is how does he know that we're going to find this exactly how he says it's going to be. And even if it does turn out that way, what in the world would ever cause somebody to let us just take something like that. Another point I want to make is that the Bible says, Jesus actually says, the Lord has need of this. Now I've said many, many times, and I believe this to be a foundational truth, if God needs anything from us, he ceases to be God. Because God, by very definition, means he's self-sufficient. The, the term for God, El Shaddai, means the self-sufficient one. Meaning that he has everything he ever needs in and of himself. However, there are things that God allows us to be a part of. And in that sense of the word, God is looking for our simple obedience. Now, you might say that what Jesus asked of these two disciples was a big deal, but the truth is, if you really look at it, all they had to do was just simply obey. Because we find out that they went into town and they found things just exactly as Jesus had told them that they would be. And in some of the gospel translations in this story, it talks about the fact somebody did actually ask them, Hey, what are you doing? And they say, hey, the Lord needs this, and they let it go. So it went exactly as Jesus told them it would be. So two things. If God's told you something, it's not your job to worry about how it's going to come to pass. It's just your job to do what Jesus said. And far too many times we hesitate in the area of simple obedience because we want to see how everything is going to work out instead of simply taking Jesus at his word. And if every disciple, if these two disciples on this day had chosen to wait, then would this have taken place through someone else? Quite possible. I believe that God gets things done however it needs to be done. But these two disciples would have for sure messed out on the unbelievable blessing of seeing the word of Jesus supernaturally fulfilled in their life and having their faith increase and built up because of what they saw God do. The next thing I want you to see is verse 4. It says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying. Now, the prophet he's speaking of is the prophet Zechariah. Because what you're about to see is a direct quotation from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which was a prophecy about Israel's coming Messiah. What the prophet said was, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and setting on a donkey, a colt. The foal of a donkey. So the prophecy that was fulfilled was that the Messiah, the king that Israel had been waiting for, would come in a very unusual way because kings didn't come riding on donkeys. Kings came riding on horses. 
They came riding on the best horses that they could find, the strongest horses that they could find, the fastest horses they could find, the most beautiful horses that they could find because everything about a king riding in a procession into a city was about awe and majesty that people would look just take one look at that king on his steed and think, oh wow, this is a powerful king. Look at him in all of his glory. It was meant to be intimidating. It was meant to show strength and to show rule and to show power. And certainly that is what the Jews could remember well as the history of the Roman kings coming into Jerusalem and taking authority and taking over the city. But I want you to see this. There was a prophecy hundreds of years before this moment that the king would come. And they had to wait hundreds of years, but sure enough, not only did the king come, the king came into town just exactly the way that it was prophesied, even though it was an odd prophecy. It wasn't likely that it would happen that way, just like it wasn't likely that a king would be born in a small town like Bethlehem. Or that a king would be born, the Messiah would be born to a virgin. And yet prophetically, hundreds of years before Jesus came, all of those prophecies had been made. And all of those prophecies were fulfilled just exactly as they were prophesied when Jesus came. I want to remind you today that there's also been word that the king that came is coming again. And just exactly as the word of God declares that the king is coming the second time, you can count on it. You can mark it down no matter what you see, no matter what you feel, no matter what you hear around you. The king is going to come again exactly the way the Bible says. Now it's important for us to understand as it relates to everything else I'm going to say today. Because Jesus talks about what the world will be like when he returns. Two particular places that I want you to note. He says it will be like it was in the days of Noah. And he specifically says that men would be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the floods fell upon the people. He also mentioned that it would be as it was in the days of Lot. In the days of Lot, of course, that references Sodom and Gomorrah and all the wickedness and the evil that was taking place there. So two things were given. That men will be eating, drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Otherwise, they're going to be going about life as usual. Just the everyday, ordinary, altogether things of life. That's going to be, they don't have time to hear Noah preaching that a flood's coming because they're too busy eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now see, understand, marrying and giving in marriage, now some people say that refers to getting married, getting divorced, getting married again, and maybe it does, but that's not exactly what it says. What it says is they're just going about life as usual. There's, how many know there's nothing wrong with eating and drinking? Matter of fact, you've got to eat and drink to survive. There's nothing wrong with getting married. As a matter of fact, the Bible says the man who finds a wife finds a good thing. So it talks about even prophetically all the way back in Genesis where God speaks to Adam and Eve. A man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two will become one flesh. So God's the one that ordained marriage. Marriage is a good thing. But when marriage or eating or drinking or any other kinds of good things take over our devotion to Jesus Christ, we have a problem. And what Jesus says is when he returns, life has gotten so crazy and everything's become so busy that even normal, everyday, ordinary, even good things will eclipse our devotion in our heart towards our Lord. That's why in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus has to tell the church at Ephesus, you've done this and you've done that and it's all great and it's all glorious and it looks like a great church, but he says, I've got this one thing against you. You've left your first love. And he says, if you don't repent and re remember where you fell from, repent and return to your first love, he says, your candlestick will be removed. Now, that's a pretty serious deal. 
Otherwise, Jesus is saying, I'm more concerned about your love and devotion for me than I am all the stuff you do for me. And we've got that so reversed. In our, even in the church, we've got that so reversed. We're so concerned about what we're doing and where we're going and what our calling is and what our ministry is and, and all the activities that we're doing. And yet Jesus says, all that stuff will take care of itself. I want to know, do you love me? How important am I in your life? Where do I sit on the, do I sit on the throne of your... We know that Jesus sits on the throne of the universe. That's no question. But where do I sit as far as it refers to the throne of your heart? Secondly, he says in the days of Lod, all kinds of depravity and immorality and corruption would fill the earth. And in that season, Jesus says, look up, I'm coming. So in the same way that it was prophesied that the king would come the first time, he did exactly as it was prophesied. Isn't it interesting that the world is starting to shape up to look exactly like Jesus said it would when he would come again? Amen. And the church is starting to shape up to look at like, exactly like Jesus said it would. You see, there's a remnant. There's always going to be a remnant. There's always going to be the bride that is pure and spotless and white, but then there's also going to be all kinds of people surrounding that have forgotten what they were saved from, what they were delivered from, whose they are, and who they are. What's important is Jesus is coming again. And the thing about it is, not only is he going to come again, but the Bible says that before he comes again, there has to be times of refreshing. Acts chapter 4, there has to be times of refreshing that will be poured out from the presence of the Lord. Why is that? Because the church needs it to become the bride that he's returning for, the glorious, spotless, virtuous bride of Jesus Christ who has, we talked about this, seemed like the word of the Lord came through the place Wednesday night in just a really sweet worship time and, and, and just kind of, <laughs> I won't say he hijacked the service because it's his service anyway, but he basically took over and spoke into the service and one thing he kept saying was is that the bride has to return to the place. The main thing you want in the bride is that it has eyes only for the groom. No one and nothing else. Now, I, want to, I don't want anybody to raise your hand, but I want you to stop. When was the last time that your eyes were only set on Jesus? Only. I said only. I didn't say Jesus and. I said only. You see, because that's what we're talking about. And in order to turn that around, there has to be an awakening. There has to be a revival. There has to be a refreshing. There has to be a time of restoration from the presence of the Lord. But I tell you, it's coming. But be aware of this. Just like when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he didn't come the way the people expected him to come. You say, but I thought the prophet said hundreds of years ago exactly how he would come. He did. But see, they had stopped paying attention to the prophets a long time before. They had stopped hungering for the prophets and what they said a long time before. And so they missed Jesus when he came. You say, well, wait a minute, We're, you're, you're talking about the triumphal entry, and they're going to celebrate. Yes, they did, but I want you to, to catch this now as we move forward. Jesus comes riding in lowly. What king ever comes riding in lowly, humbly, in gentleness? A completely different type of king than what they were used to. A servant king comes that way. A king who's interested more in capturing people's hearts and minds and he is in building physical and material kingdoms. That's the king that we serve. And that's the king who came riding into Jerusalem on that day. And it's the same king. Now he's coming as a conquering king when he returns. But he's still the servant king. So he came 
lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and they did just as Jesus commanded them. Simple obedience. They just went and did what Jesus said. Then they brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their clothes on him. That word clothes can be translated cloaks. And what it's referring to most likely, and I think this is very important, it's referring to the prayer shawls that the Jewish men would wear. I want you to see what they do with their prayer shawls. It says they laid their clothes on the donkey and the colt, and then they set him on them. And then a very great multitude spread their clothes. Again, same word, their cloaks, probably referring to their prayer shawls. And others cut down branches from trees, palm branches, and they spread them on the road. To cut down branches from trees and to wave palm branches and wave them and lay them out, that was adoration reserved for a conquering king. So I want you to see this. They took their prayers and they throwed them at Jesus. They laid them down. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, because they've heard, you know, it's not the first time a great multitude showed up. If you've read the, the, the Gospels, you understand everywhere Jesus went, great multitudes showed up. It wasn't like just a small, meager following around Jesus. Thousands of people thronged him. So often we read the term that they thronged him so much so that he had to get off the shore and get into a boat to teach them. Why is that? Or when, when he wanted to get away to pray, he had to go up on a mountain to a solitary place where no one could find them. Why? Because they had seen him perform miracle after miracle. They had seen him heal the sick and cleanse the leper and cast out devils. And they had seen him raise the dead. And they had heard about him walking on water. And then the miracle that really got him going is when two separate occasions he multiplied the loaves and fishes and fed crowds of multiplied thousands and then they had baskets left over, huge large, bas large baskets left over uh, from what was taken up after they had eaten and were full. And that miracle really got people talking. So they started to come to Jesus from everywhere. And news spread now that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And as he comes in, the word spread that, could it be? Maybe. Maybe this is the Messiah that we've been looking for. Maybe this is the one that the, the prophets talked about so many years ago. So when he comes into town, the Jewish men are taking their prayer shawls off and they're laying them at his feet and the people are cutting down palm branches and they're waving them along the path and throwing them along the path celebrating him and look at what they say it says in the multitudes who went before verse 9 and those who followed cried out Hosanna to the son of David blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest now that word means save us now oh save us now bring the victory now, this was a reference to a psalm that is a messianic psalm that David wrote. A reference to what they would say to the Messiah as he came in to take and begin his rule over Israel. They say, Hosanna, save us now, God. You're in the highest place. Save us now. Now, all this sounds good, but I want us to stop for a minute. What they're actually saying is, here's their expectation. Okay, you've multiplied loaves and fishes. You've healed the sick. You've cast out devils. You speak as one who has authority. You challenge the corrupt religious system here in Jerusalem. You're not intimidated by any man. Maybe, possibly, you're the king. So... If you're the king, we're going to get excited because we want to be free. Yes. We want the taxes. 
removed from us that the Romans have so cruelly put upon us. We want the Romans out of the city of Jerusalem and we want our city back and we want our temple back and we want our lives back. We want things to start operating smoothly in our life again. So save us and do it now. Deliver us and do it now. Bring us victory now. And I want to tell you today that what those people were probably expecting was another great feast that would be miraculously provided by the Messiah once again that maybe they could get in on if they had missed it the first time or get in on it again if they had been there the first time. Maybe there were some and often they did. They would bring their sick and Jesus would heal them all. So maybe they were looking for healing physically. Maybe they were looking for deliverance. And all of those things are wonderful. All of those things are things that Jesus came to do. And you'll see in just a moment, all of those things are things that Jesus did. But what they really were looking for was for Jesus to come in and make everything in their life right. Today. Now. This moment. You're the king do it now. Oh, if you'll do it now, we'll wave these palm branches. If you'll do it now, we'll celebrate. If you'll do it now, we'll be loyal. If you'll just save us now, we'll sing our hosannas. If you'll just bring us the victory today, we'll rejoice and recognize you as the Messiah King. But I want you to notice this phrase in verse 10. When he had come into Jerusalem, all the city, the entire city was moved saying, who is this? Who is this? I want you to notice they were moved, but they didn't have any understanding of why they were moved. And I want to tell you that happens all the time among Christians and in the church. We get moved emotionally in a moment. We get moved by a miracle. We get moved by an answer to prayer. We get moved by an event. We get moved, but we're not transformed. And we're not changed. Sometimes we don't even know what happened. It just felt good. And because it felt good, we raise all these cries and prayers and commitments and devotions. And as good as that may be, quite often our expectation is that this exact moment will continue from here on out, I'm never going to feel bad again. Bless God, I'm always going to feel the way I feel right now. God, if you'll give me these goosebumps 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, I'll follow you. I'm never going to know any problem because, Jesus, you're the king. And you're moving all of this cruel oppression off of my life. Jesus, I'm asking for heaven now. And I got news for you. You're not getting it. Because this isn't heaven. Wasn't designed to be, isn't going to be. As long as we're in this world, Jesus said, you'll have trouble, you'll have tribulation, you'll know sorrow. But be of good cheer, he said. Because I've already overcome this world. So the crowd was moved, but they didn't really know who he was. It goes on to say this, the multitudes spoke among themselves and they said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then, verse 12, Jesus went into the temple, the temple of God, his father's house, and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And then the blind and the lame came to him, where? 
in the temple. If you notice something about Jesus' ministry, most of all the miracles, barring just a few, most of all the miracles took place outside of the temple. But once Jesus cleaned the temple out, then miracles happened in the temple. Now I want to say something to us as charismatics. The Bible never said believers will follow signs and wonders. It says signs and wonders will follow those that believe. And there's a lot of Christians today crying about the fact that Man, we don't see enough miracles, we don't see enough signs and wonders in the church. Well, then get out in the marketplace and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Go armed with prayer and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and allow Jesus to drop supernatural love in your heart for the people who are broken and dying and need the help of Jesus and be bold enough to speak out and watch miracles happen outside of the temple. And as that begins to happen and the Holy Spirit begins to clean up our lives, because let me tell you something, Jesus is not interested anymore in just setting up his anointing in a physical structure made with wood and stone. Because in the New Testament, our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And what needs to be cleaned out so that we can see revival is ourselves. We need to get this cleansing. I believe that the buyers have bought and sold inside of this temple for far too long. We've allowed far too much junk in our life. Far too much merchant. We have opened up and swallowed just about anything our culture and our world wants to give us. And then we get up on Sunday morning or whenever we want something to go right in our life and then we want to claim the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you something. If Jesus isn't Lord on Monday night, Jesus is not Lord on Sunday morning. I don't care what you sing. By definition, He's not. No, is Jesus Lord? Sure He is. Jesus is Lord over all. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. And then we begin to wonder why all of this despair? Why all of this depression? Why all of this garbage going on in my life? I'm a child of the King. Well, sure you are. But what's in the temple? You see, what we really need to, need, to, need to have in our life is for Jesus to be allowed to come in through the person of the Holy Spirit and drive out everything that doesn't belong, every attitude, every thought, every idea, every concept, everything that we've swallowed and everything that we've allowed, the sin that so easily besets us, the weights that are holding us down. We need to allow Jesus into the temple of our hearts to drive all that away. And then when he does that and it's all clean, then we'll find that healing can come. Then we'll find that miracles and signs and wonders can begin to take place in the temple. I want to go on and read... Just one more passage here. So after the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. It says, Then the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple. Saying, here's this phrase again, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us now, O Lord. Now, once you notice Jesus' reaction, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious, were indignant. That means they were so mad, they were beside themselves with anger. Literally, they were just kind of grinding their teeth together. They were so mad at what these children were singing in the temple. So they say to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus' response is, he said to them, yes. And have you never read, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants... You have ordained or perfected praise or strength. 
Now, see, if you, when Jesus comes into town, here's all these people throwing palm branches and prayer shawls in the path and waving palm branches and singing Hosanna. And as far as we can tell, Jesus never responds to any of it. I believe there's a reason for that. Earlier on, you'll find a passage that says Jesus knew their hearts. He knew all men. There was one point where Jesus had a great crowd around him, and he actually looks at the crowd. For all of you who, who think that <laughs> Jesus was great at winning friends and influencing people, let me tell you what Jesus actually said. He looks at this great multitude who's following him. He said, I know what you're here for. You just heard about me multiplying the loaves and the fishes, and you just want some food. And then he proceeds to teach one of the hardest teachings Jesus ever taught. And in one place it says Jesus knew that their hearts were offended and he kept on doing it. It's John chapter 6. It's when one of my absolute favorite passages of scripture is. A lot, not a few, lots of people walked away from it. The idea is that at least hundreds, possibly thousands, left. They couldn't handle what he was saying. They were offended by what he was saying. They just couldn't wrap their minds around it. So much so that Jesus then turns to his chosen, hand-picked disciples, his 12, and he says, Will you also leave me? And Peter says in that favorite scripture for me, Lord, where else would we go? Only you have the words of life. Listen, Peter got a lot of stuff wrong, but he got one very important thing right. <laughs> Jesus was everything. <laughs> For him, it didn't matter how hard the teaching, he just needed Jesus. For him, it didn't matter who else was there and who wasn't, who followed and who didn't, he just knew he needed Jesus and says, God, there's nowhere else for me to go. I've, I have put my lot in with you and I'm staying with you. When the crowds in the streets cry out, Hosanna, Jesus has no response. But when the children cry out the same thing and the Pharisees try to get him to shut them up, he says, oh no, God ordained this praise. Because there's something about the honest, authentic heart of a child. That's why Jesus said, suffer the little children, let them come unto me. Unless you become like one of these little ones, you'll never enter into the kingdom of God. It was just a pure trust and a pure praise. They weren't, notice, they weren't looking for anything from him. <laughs> they just loved him. And Jesus received that. And he said, this will never be taken away from him. Kind of like Mary when she was at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach while Martha was burdened down by much serving. And Martha goes to Jesus and said, would you please say something to my sister? Here I am doing all this hard work while she just gets to sit and look and worship you and listen to you. And Jesus looks at her and says, yep, she got it right. And I'm not going to take it away from her. There's only one thing that's needed, and she's found it. And I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Jesus was not saying that there's never a time to serve or there's never a time to work. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave us the great example of washing the disciples' feet and then turning to the disciples and saying, do likewise. All he was saying is there's a time to serve and then there's a time to sit still at my feet. You need to know what time it is. Mary knows, she understands, that when I'm speaking, there's nothing more important. That when my presence is in your life, there's nothing that eclipses that.
because Jesus truly is the king who was to come and he's the king who is coming. The children praised him and they cried out to him and Jesus responded that it's out of the mouths of infants and young ones that God has ordained strength. But the real point that I want to take you to I can't help but wonder, and I know I've said this before, but every time I read this story, it's the thought that goes through my mind. I can't help but wonder, because multitudes were here, the Bible says, thousands of people. Casting down palm branches and prayer shawls and crying out, you're the one, you're the one, we believe you're the Messiah, save us now. I can't help but wonder how many of those thousands were in the same crowd a week later on Friday stirred by the Pharisees in a different kind of moment, with a different kind of stirring, said, crucify him. Crucify him. You see, when we're moved by moments, there's no telling what we're going to say or what we're going to do. It depends on the moment. It depends on how we feel. And so many of us have run our entire Christian life that way. Sometimes we're almost encouraged to do it. Everything is about the moment that we're in. So sometimes we're heavily devoted because we feel that. And then sometimes we barely acknowledge who Jesus is in our lives because we don't feel anything. See, I don't want to be moved by the moment. I want to be moved by the Master. I don't want to be moved by miracles. I want to be moved by the Master. Because you see, if the only reason you're following Jesus is for what he can do, what happens when he doesn't do what you want? Because I promise you, if it hasn't already happened, that day will come. You won't get what you wanted to get. It won't work the way you wanted it to work. And at that point, you've got to decide, why exactly are you following Jesus? Is it because he says everything? See, in that moment where I, in John chapter 6, up until that moment, Jesus had said everything the crowds wanted to hear. Jesus had done everything the crowds wanted him to do until then. But the minute he started saying something they didn't want to hear, they left. And the minute he started doing things differently than they wanted him to do, they walked away. Which is what makes Peter's confession that much more powerful. Because, you know, what you say and what you do in the midst of a crowd, when everybody else is saying and doing the same thing, really doesn't mean a lot. But what you say and what you do when nobody else is there to cheer you on, that's what you really believe. And that's the real you. And that's what you really feel. So as much as I love, there's nothing this pastor's heart would celebrate more than us coming into church in the midst of a crowd and everybody get caught up in worship and clap and dance and shout and sing and run to the altar and pray for half an hour and weep and cry and get back to our seats and be sitting on the edge with notebooks in hand, taking every note that we can and then leaving the place saying, oh, I hate to leave. It was so good to be here. What can I do for the kingdom of God when I leave? I wish that's the way every service would be. But can I tell you something? It'd be easy in those services, wouldn't it? Because, see, if everybody's doing that, it's almost weird not to do that. I mean, if everybody in the room is standing up shouting praise to God, you look a little odd if you're the only one who's not. If everybody in the room comes to the altar and is on their face before God, you, look a little, you feel a little different if you're not. 
But can I tell you what's awesome? Is when nobody around you seems to care about praising God, but still you realize he's worthy to be praised so your hands are lifted high and you don't care what anybody else thinks. And when nobody else wants to spend time at the altar before God, you'll make sure that you're on your face seeking God because you're not doing it to please people. You're doing it because you recognize in your heart, I need him more than I need my next breath. And when you come to church, it's not because you come to church because, hey, church is just the best thing going in the world. Can I tell you something? You can have more fun in a lot of different places. If I really wanted to go have fun, I'd go find the neatest ball game that I could go to and go watch it today. If I wanted to have fun, if I really wanted to do what my body felt like doing, I would have stayed in bed a lot longer than I did this morning. I'd probably still be in bed right now. Somebody'd have to call. Where you at, Pastor? Well, <laughs> on my way. If it was all about that, this is not where I would be. But I'm here, and I hope you're here, because he said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together with the saints. And even more, as you see the day approaching. I hope you're not here because you think this is a perfect church. Oh my goodness, you might as well walk out now, because I promise you it's not. Not because of anybody else. It's just look right here. You don't have to look any further. I'm not perfect. I got flaws. And so do you. I promise. Just let me follow you for about 15 minutes. I'll pick out a few. Well, brother, I can pick out some in you. I bet you can. I don't hesitate. To. I'm sure you can. Let me tell you what they are. I Boy, I, the Holy Spirit just gave me wisdom when I first started pastoring. I just decided that if I will tell you my flaws before you have a chance to find them, then I ain't worried about anything that you ever find. So you'll probably hear me confess right up here what I do because if I'm telling you what I'm doing, you don't have to go looking. Well, I think I'll look. You go right ahead. I promise you if it happens, I'll eventually tell you about it in the pulpit. Well, how could you possibly do that? Because I'm not here trying to impress you. I'm here to point you to the only one who is impressive, and his name is Jesus. I'm not looking for you to walk out of this church and sing the praises of Abundant Life Worship Center or Limbo Quarter, but I will be blessed if you walk out of this church and sing the praises of Jesus and talk about how you felt his presence and how you were moved by his love. If that's what's happening here, then glory to God. Let's keep doing it. And if it's about us and about me and about you and about people and about names then let's shut her down today because that's not what we're here for because if Jesus showed up physically he'd do the same thing in this house that he did in the temple in Jerusalem he'd get him a little whip he'd tie it together and he would clean out everything that doesn't point to his father and he'd say listen the reason you're here is to have communion with my father and everything else you're involved in is an absolute waste of your time and mine now, that's nice when we talk about abundant life, isn't it? Well, this isn't the temple he's that interested in. See, abundant life can be here today and gone tomorrow, and Jesus is still marching right on. You do understand that, right? The kingdom does not revolve around abundant life or any other church name or any pastor's name or teacher's name or author's name, preacher's name. The temple he's interested in is your body. So for all of us who are crying out, save us now. Jesus, we believe you're the king. We believe you're coming. I pray that that's what you're crying out. Even so, as John said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But what if he does? No, no, no. I mean, really, what if he really does? 
Well, if it's the rapture, no, I'm not talking about the rapture. That, that's coming too, and I look forward to that. No, I'm talking about what if he just shows up in his power and in his glory and in his manifest presence in your house today. What if he really does come? And what if he says, I'm not interested in just taking away all your problems? Oh, but that's what, save us now, God, bring us victory. That's not what I came to do. I'm not interested in you building some physical kingdom here. What would you do if Jesus did everything you wanted? You'd build a bigger kingdom for yourself, wouldn't you? No, yes you would. Yes you would. What would happen if all your debts were gone? You'd go buy more stuff? No, I wouldn't. Yes, you would. Hadn't you done it already? I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that's what you'd do. What would happen if, if Jesus cleaned out every single thing in the relationships that you have that aren't making it personal, you know, just, just aren't making it the way it ought to be and causing... What, what would happen then? You'd still put faith in those relationships once they're renewed instead of your relationship with Jesus Christ and people are inevitably going to hurt you again. Oh, I wouldn't do it. Yes, you would. How do you know? Because you're doing it now. Aren't you? And, and, and you're not, I, I'm doing it now. See? Oh, but Jesus is Lord. Then praise Him now. When everything's wrong. Oh, but I love Jesus. Then love Him. Live for Him. Seek Him. Go after Him. But I can't. Because, why? But you don't understand. So whatever it is is bigger than him. Is that what you're saying? Your hurt's bigger than him. Your disappointment's bigger than him. Your disillusionment's bigger than him. Your addiction's bigger than him. Your sin's bigger than him. Your problem's bigger than him. Your pain's bigger than him. Then you're making it sound too simple. No, I'm not. Because believe me, I fit in that category too. I'm the same way. We're making it too hard. See, here's the fact. Jesus did come riding into Jerusalem as their king that day. He was everything Zechariah had prophesied so many hundreds of years before. That day was the day of Jerusalem's deliverance. That day, Jesus came. But it wasn't going to do the way, it wasn't going to work out the way they thought. Instead of Jesus sitting on Caesar's throne, Jesus was going to be crucified on a cross. Instead of a crown of gold, it was going to be a crown of thorns. Instead of people crying out a week later, Hosanna to the son of David, they were going to be spitting on him. And saying, if you really are the king that you say you are, come down from that cross. Prove it. Same crowd. Moved. First time they were moved by Jesus. Next time they were moved by the Pharisees. Stirring up the crowd saying, tell them to crucify him. Tell them that's what you want. Tell them to give us Barabbas. Some of the same crowd that said Hosanna cried out crucify him. My question to you today where do you fit in the crowd? Oh, pastor, I would cry out Hosanna. I don't care what they do. I'd cry out Hosanna. I pray that's true. 
But my question is, what do you do now when things don't go your way? What do you do now when prayers aren't answered the way you want them to be answered? What do you do right now, today, when trouble comes? When you don't feel the goosebumps? When people disappoint you? I'm not trying to say, oh, be discouraged. What I'm trying to say is be encouraged because you see Jesus on the cross, and I'll close with this, on the cross, he spoke some very powerful words. Everything he said was powerful. The most powerful thing he said is it is finished, but the words I want to remind you of today is he looked down at the foot of the cross and he saw all the people who were ridiculing him and mocking him and spitting on him and jeering at him. But I believe he looked a lot farther down. I believe he saw the disciples who had forsaken him, who were huddled in some room somewhere in Jerusalem, hoping that the same crowd who had come for Jesus didn't come for them. After just a few nights earlier, they had all said to a person, oh, if this one forsakes you, it doesn't matter if everybody forsakes you, I'll never forsake you. And he looks down at the cross, and all, the only one that he sees there is John. Everybody else is nowhere to be seen. I believe he spoke these words for them. And I believe he looked down through all of time and eternity and he saw your face and mine. And he saw all the times that we were going to say, God, no matter what, I'll follow you, only to be disappointed and be nowhere to be found. And I think he said these words. Father, forgive them. They don't understand. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And oh my goodness, there was never a prayer that Jesus prayed that wasn't answered. Can I tell you something? The Father did. On that awful, awful day that we now call Good Friday, the Father forgave all of us for all the things we just didn't know what we were doing. You see, the one person that's not surprised when you mess up is God. He knew you would. The one person that doesn't just go crazy when you go crazy is God because it doesn't surprise him at all. He looked down through time and he saw those moments when you're talking to one person. You say, bless God, hallelujah, this is what the word of God says. Boom, 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 boom. To only six hours later, all by yourself, or maybe you and your husband or wife or your family, say, I don't know what God's doing. I just don't understand where he's at. I don't know if it's worth following him or not. For goodness sakes, I've been praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And I hadn't seen, matter of fact, things are worse now than they were before. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't get it. And God did. He did. And the only thing you do and the only thing I do, the only part we play, is to receive that forgiveness. Stop being impressed with ourselves and just receive the forgiveness that God gave us. Because, you see, there's something about that. When we stop being impressed with ourselves and what we do and we start being more impressed with Jesus and what he's done, we can't help but fall in love with him. There's an old song I used to listen to 
that a Christian group sang back in the early 80s. It was called, To Know Him is to Love Him. To know Him is to love Him. The more I know Him, the more I see Him. The more I understand the price He paid and the forgiveness He gave me and the love He had for me, the more I can't help but just love Him. And that's what He's after. Because, see, He knows love covers a multitude of sins. He knows that what all your effort and willpower won't do, love will. He knows that when you won't do what is right because you feel like doing it, you will do what is right just because you love Him. And you see, God wants you to come to the point where you're doing more of what you're doing just because you love Him than because you feel a certain way. Or things are wanting, you wanting things to work out a certain way. See, the King has come. And nothing in your life changes the fact that, see, nothing that happened the rest of the week changed the fact that Jesus had triumphantly rode into Jerusalem to absolutely take the authority that was his. He just did it in a way the people didn't expect. And how many times will we look back in eternity and see where the Holy Spirit rode into our lives and our circumstances and took his authority and brought victory and salvation. He just didn't do it the way we thought he would. I pray that we will not be those who miss the king when he comes. Just because he doesn't do things the way we expected. I want you to bow your heads with me. Father, in the name of Jesus today, we thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit that we felt in this room from the beginning. We're grateful for what you did in our time of corporate praise and worship. Lord, how